Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As President Trump is pushing states to open up their COVID-19 restrictions and protests are popping up around the country, many sponsored by conservative activists, I thought it would be a good time to get an epidemiologist's perspective on these debates, on where we are and where we're going. And it just so happens that I have an epidemiologist in the family. My brother, Steve Goodman, is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and and population health and medicine. He joined us a month ago on the Vermont Conversation to talk about the coronavirus epidemic, and he graciously offered to bring us up to date. Steve, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with where the headlines are right now, uh, this issue of easing up restrictions. What is your view of what easing restrictions, uh, what the consequences of that are going to be, and whether it's appropriate to be talking about that now? Well, I, uh, I think there are a few things that people have to understand. First of all, restrictions, uh, there are many, many things that we're being prevented from doing. Uh, going to sports events, um, going to the dentist, going to restaurants. But each one of those is really a different uh, intervention. Each one of those has a different ability to stop uh, spread or restrict spread of the infection. And so as we think about relaxing uh, restrictions, we really have to think about how do we unpeel the onion? There are many, many, many things we're not doing. And the question is, as we begin to re-enter uh, our regular economy, which ones can we do relatively safely? And of the many, many things, can the kids go back to school? And one of the problems is we don't really know. So this is going to be a bit of an adventure uh, if we start to do this. The other thing, and we'll return to that, the other thing that we have to remember is that the, the, the virus has no memory. It has no politics. 
It's just sitting there. And remember, back in February, or at least early February, there were no cases anywhere. Just like it's sort of returning to right now in a few, in some places. So some places are looking pretty good, just like they were in January and early February. But the virus was out there and it was just waiting for us to start mixing and interacting in the way we might start to do as restrictions are relaxed. And then you can go from zero to 100 in the proverbial 60 seconds. So the, the, the virus doesn't give us any credit for having knocked it back in a lot of places. As we re-engage, we're going to have to think about how we're going to monitor things in a way we didn't before back in February and how we're going to keep it from roaring back and just come back at a controlled level so we can begin to live our lives, uh, but also deal with this in a way that will, in a sense, maximally protect us while incurring some risk. There's no question we're going to be incurring risk. And how to strike that balance is going to be a phenomenal challenge for this country. Do you think it's even appropriate at this moment to be relaxing restrictions? I think that's a very local decision. So again, it depends which ones we're talking about. Should we start piling to airplanes and having people go from Los Angeles to Vermont right now, where Los Angeles has a fair number of people infected? No, that's not one of the restrictions we probably should lift. Should we be able to go to more businesses and enter uh, one, two, three at a time? Maybe. Uh, Again, it depends on the local conditions. It depends on how many cases they're seeing, how many hospitalizations, how, how far back we've knocked the virus. And then, and this is key, there have been a number of plans put forward for how we re-enter. What's absolutely key is that we have some sort of monitoring system in place, uh, whether that be testing or symptom tracking or something that tells us absolutely as fast as we can muster whether the relaxation is producing a surge in new infections or even a few new infections. So we can do something about that. So unfortunately, that infrastructure is in place almost nowhere. So you're talking about testing. Well, I'm talking about testing. Now the other kind of monitoring is symptom tracking. Symptoms come before, um, before, uh, Um, not necessarily test positivity, um, but they certainly come before hospitalizations. Um, So either we have massive testing. It doesn't have to be testing of everybody. It can be waves of testing of representative samples of people to have our finger on the pulse of the prevalence of the infection in our communities. That's what we really need. Second to that is symptom checking. Um, and there are a number of uh, efforts. One's coming out of Stanford. There's, I think, another one out of Harvard <clears throat> with an app. We have a little chat bot that people can enter in their symptoms uh, literally every day. It just, it just pings you and says, how are you doing today? And if you say, 
same as yesterday, that's the end of the interaction. If you say, I'm, I have the sniffles or I have a headache or I have a fever, it, it asks you a few more questions in an interactive way. And then this goes into a gigantic database uh, where they're monitoring states and regions all over the country. And that's another way to have a hint of whether there is a resurgence. It's not as good as testing, but it's sort of free. And so enough people sign up for um, monitoring programs like that, we'll, we'll have a free way to have a clue as to whether, um, whether things are going south with the reopening. But with, without that, then we're like we were back in February. We're flying blind. The, the uh, virus is spreading. And the only way we know is when people start showing up in hospitals. And where are we at with testing now? And where do we need to be? Uh, well, um, we need to have the capacity to test, as I say, large samples of the communities repeatedly, repeatedly. So we, again, as we relax, we, it, you can't just do it next week and say, oh, things look good. You have to do it the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. Uh, my colleagues at Stanford are actually planning exactly those sorts of waves of testing. And I assume that's going on in other places as well. Um, we need millions of tests to do that. I mean, let's think about it. We have, you know, whatever, about 330 million people in this country. We want to be testing some meaningful representative sample uh, every week. Um, let's say, even if it was 1%, well, what's 1% 1, 1 of 330 million? Well, that's 3.3 million. So that's 3.3 uh, million every week. We're not even remotely within a light year of that right now. We're in the tens of thousands of tests uh, nationally. I, I didn't check the, the numbers today. It might, might be 100,000 or so. But we're, we're nowhere, nowhere near where we need to be to have our, to sort of have a protective radar uh, for the community of, of what's happening when we relax restrictions. So that's, that's a problem. Um, so is it too soon to um, relax restrictions? I would say that there are certain communities in certain regions where they are primed to do it. But the problem is they won't be able to tell whether it succeeded or failed until it's a little too late. They won't know until about three or four weeks later. And we already know that this virus has the potential to create doubling times of every three days if it's running wild, if we're not distancing. So we're, we're sort of uh, with, with self-imposed handcuffs here. Uh, until we get that testing ramped up, it's going to be very difficult for communities to, to restart with, with confidence. Um, they can do it and they will ultimately get that biologic signal, but the signal is going to be people getting sick and showing up in the hospitals. And, and that's, that's a late signal. And also it's, that's too late to do anything about it. If you're doing testing, um, you can isolate, when you have very, very few cases, you can do the, the, um, the, use the strategy that all the Asian countries use and ultimately Italy, which is when you just have a few cases, you get those cases fast, you isolate them, you trace their contract <clears throat> contacts, and then you sort of snuff things out. 
Uh, and you have to do that on a large scale, um, but not massive scale. Once it spreads too widely, you can't do that anymore. But again, without testing, you lose the ability to do that. And then you're just waiting for another wave. Uh, and, and you can't, you can't stamp it out right, right at the beginning. So we're not really ready <clears throat> for meaningful uh, re-engagement in, in most of this country. But I'm very, very hopeful that we will soon. For people who have not been following this closely, why are we so far behind in testing? We hear of countries that have been testing millions of people, South Korea, places like that. Why are we in the place that we are, which is we have a woefully inadequate number of tests and number of people who have been tested? Well, <laughs> it's really a, a simple answer is no leadership, no national leadership. So we have no national initiative on testing. The, the one potential central leadership that we could have had was from the CDC um, as uh, has been reported in detail, they had problems with their initial test uh, and they had problems actually the minute they decided to develop their own test because the WHO had a perfectly good test. Um, but for a variety of reasons, the CDC decided they didn't want to go with the WHO test. This is the same WHO that our president um, has just defunded because he says they are the source of the problem. They had at the time we were beginning to gear up on testing, they had 10 million tests ready to go, <clears throat> a number beyond our imagination even now. Um, but we developed our own test. We inhibited the development of other tests while that was coming out. Then it turned to be out to be flawed. <clears throat> but even, even then, we've had no national leadership on the development and dissemination of the test or the development of the supply chains for all the materials that are necessary to do the tests. And we've all heard about the problems with swabs. We don't even have enough swabs to do these tests. And second, we the testers also have to have the same personal protective equipment that doctors in a hospital have to have. And that's in short supply. So in many places, they want to use the the very thin stores of PPE that they have for the frontline doctors and not for the testers. But the most important reason by far is the complete lack of a national strategy with complete with supply chain analysis and, um, and fixing um, for all the pieces that need to, to be in place for these tests um, to be administered on, on a large scale. And it's been left to states and indeed left to individual health departments. There's, there's about five testing. And again, I, I'm speaking just for my own institution, Stanford. We have five or six or seven waves of test initiatives coming out just now, uh, some with UCSF, some with the health department. But it's, they're all these sort of small initiatives. There's, there's nothing coming from the federal government with the materials or the directions to do this on a mass scale. It's being, it's, it's sort of every state and every region and every county for themselves. And that is not how you mobilize a country to fight the, the battle that we, uh, that we're in right now. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. Uh, my guest this week is Steve Goodman. He is a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine at the Stanford Medical School, where he's also an associate dean, and he's also my brother. Um, Steve, as we now have, you know, we're months into the whole world responding to this, and we have a picture now of places that have successfully managed the pandemic and places that haven't. You've certainly described the United States as a place that hasn't. What's the most interesting case study from around the world of a place that managed it well? And, and where are they at now? Uh, well, I think um, I'm not an international expert. I think one of the most interesting case studies is Taiwan. Um, and there is uh, one of my colleagues here is an expert. Uh, on what uh, Taiwan did and uh, and has uh, presented some very very compelling uh, talks and and articles on on their strategy and what 's interesting about Taiwan first of all taiwan 's economy right now is humming. the stores are not shut down, the kids are going to school. everything is fine i mean and, and they had their early cases very close to when we did. So they were prepared and they were prepared right from the start and right from the top. They had a national plan in place because they were, they were scarred by the SARS epidemic. And of course this is SARS-2 uh, COVID um, and our coronavirus. Um, and uh, they developed a national plan that involved uh, all the agencies of government, that involved uh, uh, organized uh, halting and testing of people at all border points. Uh, they built a headquarters that uh, would put all the uh, key leaders of every agency that needed to be involved, and, and that was specifically for epidemic control. They had the masks uh, in, in production from day one, and they ramped up from 2 million a day to 10 million a day within, within a month. And they were shipping masks to, to the United States. Um, it was an all points coordinated effort to control this with massive testing, uh, massive distancing at the beginning and case finding and isolation. All the components that we would need to put in place uh, with with coordination and, and national strategy. And, and I'm not doing justice to how thoroughly they thought this through. Um, they looked at every piece of the mask and looked at the supply chain for every layer of the mask. They also had a plan for, for preventing hoarding. They not only restricted the purchases of masks to a certain number, um, but they developed an economic strategy so the price would go down over time so there was no advantage to hoarding and reselling and on and on and on they thought through every dimension of the epidemic they activated their plan on day one the first day they heard about what was going on in china and of course they sit right right off the coast of china uh they started boarding airplanes with people in uh basically what looked like hazmat suits and they stopped it they stopped it in its tracks and they prevented it from spreading. So that is the most amazing story I have heard 
we've all heard about China and Korea and, and, and how they basically beat it back by brute force. But Taiwan beat it back by very strategic, uh, very strategic force. And, uh, well, and, their, and their lives have not been that disrupted. Um, well, that's amazing <laughs> to hear what could have been. So let's turn to the questions that uh, many people have right now, starting with uh, the fall. Uh, as parents and students wonder, will they be back in school in the fall? What's your answer? Boy, this is complicated. There are many, many, many things that could affect that. I think if the decisions have to be made now, today, probably most schools will not open in the fall. But there are many things that could happen. Testing could indeed ramp up. We could indeed find more effective therapies to prevent uh, death uh, or or serious uh, damage. Uh, Any one of those would be um, game changers. Um, The... And the other thing we have to do is figure out how we can engineer sort of a middle ground between zero tolerance, which for contact, which is sort of what we have right now, and and figure out how we can relax the restrictions to the point where the the amount of infection that occurs can be managed and tolerated and suppressed while still letting our economy uh, go at some level. And this is going to be, have to be a, a collective decision. There, there's no way we can go back by the, the fall to exactly the same situation that we um, had before. But maybe we can find a level of economic activity and a way of interacting with each other so we can uh, prevent the, the complete collapse of, of local economies and but allowing some degree of COVID to come back uh, at at a at what will I'll say is I'll just have to say is a is a manageable level, and perhaps trying to protect the most vulnerable vulnerable people. I think it's going to be tremendously challenging. We need very smart people and a lot of uh, um, uh, smart planning and smart uh, infrastructure to do that. But I think that's where we're going to want to aim. If we have zero tolerance, our, our economy, uh, you know, we'll have deaths just from what what's happening in the economy. So it's not going to be economy versus deaths. It's going to be deaths from, from one source versus uh, deaths from the virus. So when do you think school officials realistically, how long can they do they need to wait before making that decision? Is this something that they basically have to decide in August? Yeah, I I mean, as we all know, schools are very, very, very complicated social enterprises, and probably that decision has to be made very soon for most schools. So given what we know today, uh, I, I think many school systems or universities are going to take the safe route, what they view as the safe route, and probably continue distance learning, as difficult as that is. Uh, But I don't know exactly what their deadline is. And this epidemic and these experiments and with relaxation are going to be happening state by state right now as we speak. And in two weeks, we'll know more than we know today. And in a week later, we'll 
we'll know a little more. And if the uh, school officials can wait a month to make that decision, they'll have a lot more information about the threats, uh, about the consequences of certain forms of relaxing. And, and in some sense, every state is a laboratory because each state, it, this is, these policies are being made state by state, to some extent, county by county, but more state by state. And we'll watch. We'll watch and see what happens in Georgia right now. Uh, we'll watch and see what happens in California. The, the governor has put out a plan for re slow re-entry. Um, we're not quite there yet, but, but maybe in a few weeks we'll start. So every state is a lab, and we need to be pay attention, paying attention to what happens in every state. And then, and then we can make, uh, make some informed decisions. As an epidemiologist and having looked at how these epidemics and pandemics have gone elsewhere, be it Ebola, the 1918 Spanish flu, how does this story end, the current one? Well, (laughs) uh, I will say I'm not a scholar of all of those epidemics, but usually it ends with either the disease burning out in a sense, as it could with Ebola, uh, with, with intensive isolation and contact tracing. Um, with something this infectious, it, uh, it can end with uh, large percentages of the population becoming immune through getting sick or through vaccines. Or the final way it can end is if we get an effective therapy. So we won't be prevented from getting sick, but we'll, we can uh, prevent deaths. So, um, and also just learning more about this virus. There's so many things we don't know. So many things we don't know. Um, so I think therapy, better testing, um, hopefully it won't be through everybody getting sick and then it just burns through the population. And, uh, and then finally, vaccine. Uh, it has to be one of those. We either all get sick with some dying one way or the other, or we find a way to treat it, or we find a way to prevent it through vaccination. There's sort of no other way that they die out. It took the 1918 flu took about two two full years. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Steve, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. and. Uh, been a pleasure as always. Okay. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he's also a professor of epidemiology and population health and medicine, and he's also my brother.